to have the kids with us. Last Sunday, they were able to join in the service with us, which was such a treat. I always love to hear the kids and to see the kids as they worship, and it is a blessing to each of us. I will tell you that as I get, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, we moved the offering to after service. I thought I was forgetting it again. Uh, We're not taking the offering up during the service, and that is to keep everyone from touching common surfaces. So as you leave, there'll be individuals at each of the doors to help collect the offering at the end of the service. The last month or so, I've kind of been preaching a little bit in-your-face kind of stuff. We've been talking about revival, talking about the need for revival and what that should look like. And obviously, it's a great idea that revival would take place. But as a part of that, it's not going to happen unless we're actually doing our part as well. I remember we talked about prayer being something that always precedes revival. We talked about transformation as something that has to happen. If it doesn't happen, then it's not truly revival. And there are all these different factors that come into play. There's a lot of responsibility that's falling on you. I want to encourage you, today's service is not about revival, but I want to encourage you, all the things that we've looked at over the last month, they're still true. And if prayer still precedes revival, then you as the body of Christ ought to continue to pray that revival will take place. And if changes need to happen in your life, then you need to be willing to examine your own heart and to allow the Spirit of God to now direct you in everything you say and do. Because God does want to send revival among his people. Please understand that this is not just some pipe dream about what could happen. It's not just a reminder of what has happened in the past. But rather, this is God's desire that all men and women should come to the point of repentance and be saved. I believe that God wants to do that, and maybe he wants to do it beginning here. So I said that the last month or so, it's kind of been in your face. I'm going to tell you, today is intended to encourage the body of Christ. A teacher wrote the following sentence on her blackboard. I ain't had no fun all summer. Then she faced her class and said, class, what can I do to correct this? Jimmy raised his hand and he said, get a boyfriend. (laughs) Much can be lost in translation, especially if we are not careful. For example, a few years ago, I had the privilege of doing some ministry, actually with some of you, in a prison about an hour away from here. Following that visit, I received an interesting request for a pen pal. The individual didn't care if it was me or somebody else. He just wanted someone to correspond with. So it turned out to be me. He shared in his initial letter that He was in his 50s, and he was serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for a violent crime which he admitted he was guilty of. Through his time in prison, though, he had come to some conclusions that, according to his own words, he was not willing to reconsider. For example, he said he used to believe in God. In fact, he was raised in a Baptist church, and he was baptized and taught about the goodness of God, but he could no longer consider the possibility that God was real, certainly not the God that he had been taught about growing up. In fact, he added that if God was real, 
then he must be very cruel, allowing him, talking about this individual, to go through such hardship. There is much that is disheartening about my friend's story. On the one hand, you have an individual who seems to have made some very poor choices that will negatively impact him for the rest of his life. On the other hand, he is now misinterpreting God's goodness and faithfulness based on the fact that he is being held accountable for his own actions. So let me begin today by addressing one observation about my friend. Know that he is not all that different from many of us. Sure, his consequences seem a little more significant, but the idea that God's goodness is somehow contingent upon my current circumstance is actually pretty common. If God blesses me with lots of money, good health, and a good career, a good job, maybe a husband and a wife, then God must be good. But if I'm missing any of these things, or maybe I've got some other type of hardship that is upon me, then God must not exist, or if he does exist, he must be some kind of evil. We interpret our circumstances as the defining factor in God's goodness, but that is not true. Let me suggest to you today that God's goodness has already been settled. You've heard me say this from the pulpit on many occasions, regardless of what our circumstances look like today. I'm going to share two stories with you this morning and see if you can kind of find the common element that they both share. The first is one of those exciting parables that Jesus told about our Heavenly Father. There was a wealthy man who early one morning dropped by the marketplace, which was the ancient equivalent of an unemployment office. There he hired a bunch of guys to come out and to work his vineyard throughout the day at an agreed upon rate of pay. A few hours later, he went back again. Apparently, he didn't have enough workers, so he went back again. And then a few hours later, again each time employing more and more men. In fact, as Jesus told it, the owner of the vineyard hired extra workers all the way up until just about quitting time. The last men were hired just one hour before sunset. As the last light of day faded, the workers gathered to receive their pay. They didn't wait until the end of the week or the end of the month. Every day, you're a day laborer. You're getting paid at the end of each day. They were lined up in order from the last ones hired and working backward to the ones who were hired in the morning. And this is when Jesus adds a twist to the story. Every man, no matter how long they had worked that day, received the exact same pay. One day's wage. Well, it's not hard to figure out at some point or another, this is going to cause a little bit of conflict. I imagine that when the first guys get to the front of the line, the ones who came in an hour before sunset, then they get their day's wage. 
Those who had been there in the morning, those who had come early afternoon, those who had been working all day are thinking to themselves, if they got that much, man, I got really good stuff coming to me. If God paid them that much, what's he going to do for me? He finishes with the guys who came an hour before closing time. And he moves on to the next one and they get a day's wage. A low murmur probably passed among those who were hired earlier in the day. And finally, someone would speak up. This is not right. It's not fair. You've shortchanged us. We did most of the work today. We carried the burden of being out in the hot sun, but you treated them as equals in the labor. Jesus puts these words in the mouth of the owner of the vineyard. Didn't we agree together on what I would pay you? I've kept my word to you. Now don't be angry at my desire to be generous. Now for the second story, which took place in a classroom at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri back in 2002. It's recorded actually in a preaching journal that I was reading from this week. It was a day for final exams. Denise Banderman walked into the classroom minutes before the professor arrived. Everybody in the room was doing last-minute cramming. It's the exam. It's the final exam. And as much as everybody has prepared all semester long, most of them didn't start until the night before. Then the professor enters the room, and he takes a few minutes to review. And most of what he reviewed was very familiar. But there were some things that no one remembered ever hearing. I have been in those classrooms when that happens. The professor responded with what sent cold chills up every student's spine. This is in your textbook, and you are responsible for all of the content on this exam. There have been so many times I sat in a classroom, and I expected because we covered it in class, it will be on the exam, but I confess I didn't always read everything that was in the textbook. The time came for the test. He gave the word, and every student took up their pen and turned over their test. And I want you to hear this in Denise's own words. She said, I couldn't believe it. To my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. A wordless stir traveled like a wave over the class as each student looked at their completed exam. On the bottom of the last page of every test was this note from the professor. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. Now consider what you've just heard in those two stories. There was the story about the laborers who received a full day's wage for one hour's work. And then you have the story of an already completed exam that gave every student an undeserved A. What do these two stories have in common? It is grace. 
Can I tell you something? Those aren't just the experiences in other people's lives. There isn't a single person in this room who hasn't experienced outrageous, lavish, unexpected, and undeserved grace. What is more, we experience these graces every single day. They are poured out constantly. And I know this, and I declare it with total confidence today because of one unchanging truth that radiates my sense of reality. God is good. If you want to see God for who he really is, here's a good starting point. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. First Chronicles 16, 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love is eternal and his faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5. And when Moses boldly pleaded with God, please show me your glory, he was asking to see God for who he really is. Show me as much as I can stand, Lord. So what did God show him? Exodus 33, 19 and 20 gives us God's response. It says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And God showed him something so wonderful and accessible that it caused the skin of Moses' face to glow with the radiance of God's presence, so much so that it scared the people. He showed Moses his goodness. What do we mean by God's goodness. We sing about it and we say it often, but do we fully understand this attribute of God? Think about the goodness of God with me this morning. The Bible defines God's goodness in two ways. One has to do with his character and the other has to do with his actions. Psalm 119 verse 68 actually captures both of them when it says of God, you are good and you do what is good. The first half of that verse focuses on the fact that God is by nature good. That is, he is morally excellent, extraordinarily beautiful, deeply glad, extravagantly bountiful. But since this is God we're talking about, this goodness ascribed to him is raised to the highest possible levels. Think about it. God is the original definition of good. He is good in and of himself. For us, goodness is an added quality, but it comes naturally for him. God is not just the greatest of beings. He is absolutely the best in everything. That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, no one is good but one, God. Mark 10, 18. We call all kinds of things good in today's culture. This steak is good. I love a good steak. He is a good friend. That was a good movie. 
But all that we call good on this earth is tainted with imperfection. God alone is goodness itself. But of course, how do you see the character of a person by his or her actions? So the second strand of definition for God's goodness concentrates on what he does. And the Bible is full of descriptions to point to his kindness, his mercy, his steadfast love, his generosity. It's as if God seems bent on giving to human beings beyond all deserving all the time. It's a part of his goodness. Have you ever thought of God as generous toward you? Can you believe that when he looks at you with all your baggage, with all of your junk, all your hang-ups, he says, I want to be generous to you. I can't wait to pour out on you that which will make you happy. Not because you deserve it, but because there's something about who I am that loves to overflow in extravagant ways upon you. The Bible says that those are actually God's thoughts about you. God is for you. He has your back. He is there planning to do you good. You are the object of his affection. And because of his divine nature, all that he expresses comes from an expansive, overwhelming God-sized generosity toward you. But maybe you just can't go there right now. Maybe your circumstances are so difficult, your life is so hard, and your options so few that saying God is good feels hollow, fake. Maybe you're like my friend that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon today. Your suffering and your hardship make this too unbelievable. Let me help you see this through the lens of God's word for a moment. Normally, I just give you one passage of scripture. We're going to talk about several passages here this morning. Let me give you three specific channels that God uses to broadcast his goodness to us. God reveals his goodness, first of all, through natural blessings. This is the lowest level at which he expresses his goodness and the one we tend to overlook or take for granted. But David saw it clearly. He was moved by God to write Psalm 145. It is a hymn of praise that celebrates God's goodness expressed in the created order. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 145, he shouts out, Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. And verses 7 through 9 describe what the older generation will say to the younger. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. Notice verse 9. The Lord is good to everyone. Who is included in the word everyone? You are. 
case we missed that, he repeats the idea in the next phrase, his compassion rests on all he has made. That means there's nowhere in the universe that you can go where God won't be good to you. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go easy. It doesn't mean that because he is a good God that you'll never have to deal with hardship. There will never be difficulty of any kind in your life. That is not what the scripture says. But his goodness will be with you regardless of what you face. Down in verse 15 and 17 of that same chapter, we read more about his goodness. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his acts. Every relationship, every job, every tree, every taste of food that pleases us, every friend and flower and field are a reminder of his compassion for us. Look in every corner of this world and every part of your day and you will find the overflow of his generosity if only you will begin to look for it. So we see it in these things. Psalm 107 shows us about his kind interventions. Psalm 107 is totally devoted to this theme and opens with joy, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the hand of the foe. Then the psalmist describes three different scenarios where God graciously steps in to reveal his goodness. And I don't have time to unfold each one of them, so I want to touch on these three very quickly. The first, God comes to rescue, to the rescue of people who are frantically searching for something or someone that will satisfy their soul. When they cry out to the Lord, he will deliver them and their soul will find its true home. I wonder how many of us are frantically searching for fulfillment in something or someone else today. If only I had a spouse. If only I had a job. If, I on, if only I had a million dollars in my bank. If only I had... You put whatever you have been chasing in there. Cry out to the Lord. He will answer. The second thing we see in this chapter, God intervenes in the lives of those who have rebelled against the word of God. And they suffer for it. When they repent. Imagine this, the psalmist who is probably writing this is David. One who knew the blessing of God, but also knew the wrath of God. One who knew what it was to walk in disobedience to the Lord and knew when there were consequences that came as a result. But when they repent, God delivers them from their distress. He breaks the chains of sin that bind them and he turns their night into day not necessarily removing all the accountability, although sometimes we would like that. 
but rather providing light within the accountability. Yes, there still may be consequences to the sins which we participated in previously. But God will be there to walk with us, and that's where the light comes from. The third thing that we see in this chapter, God rescues those who are pounded by calamity, those who are dealing with hardship at every turn. When the storms threaten to sink us and we are at our wit's end and we feel like there is no hope, we can call to him and see him command those storms to be still because he is good. What storm do you face today? Is your world falling apart? Turn to the Lord. He will be there to deliver. He has been there for you more than you will ever know. No matter what situation you face this morning, God is the best person to take it to. There is no better source of deliverance or blessing than him because he is good all the time. The third channel that God often uses to reveal his goodness is through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, maybe this seems too elementary for us. You've heard the message of Jesus many times over, but the truth is that not everyone truly understands who Jesus is. When I was a professor at Southern Wesleyan University, the first assignment that I would use every single semester involved students recounting their own Christian story. And it was amazing to me how many students were raised in the church, yet they had absolutely no clue regarding who Jesus truly is and why he came. By the way, that is not a reflection on Southern Wesleyan University because these were new students. It's a reflection on the church that people could come to church all their lives and never truly discover who Jesus Christ is and what he has done is heartbreaking. And it should not be true, but it is. So bear with me for a moment. Colossians 1 reminds us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is God's goodness in the flesh. He demonstrated God's desire to pour out blessing and help and deliverance on us in three ways. Number one, he took the judgment of our sins Upon himself. Romans 5 8 declares that God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's extravagance flowed to us in the amazing substitution of his son in our place on the cross. His death for us is the undisputed picture of unmerited goodness. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. In fact, we continue to do things often that prove how much we don't deserve this. But God is good. His nature drives a desire to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So he puts forward his son on our behalf to take our hell and give all who believe heaven. Second thing we see is he includes a thousand other things with that gift of himself. Romans 8.32 says, 
this of God. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? In other words, God has already shown his goodness toward you in the biggest way possible. All the other little details to help you live a godly life through thick and thin are included in that gift. You have everything that you need. This is the transformation that I've been talking about over the past month. God is not content leaving you in your sin. He ate with sinners, but while eating with them, he set them free to live transformed lives. Third thing that we see as a gift from God, Jesus unlocks God's goodness toward us in even new ways. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that every one of God's promises is basically yes in Christ. That means that all the good and perfect gifts of God come to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. If I want to understand and appreciate God's goodness toward me, I can begin and end with Jesus. So back to the original point of God's goodness. How will you respond to God's goodness? The goodness of God calls for a response. And let me give you three specific, everything's three today. There's three of every point today. Let me give you three specific steps we must take to change our lives and begin to fully experience the effects of God's generosity. The first is to repent of unbelief and pride. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul is saying, do you think that all these blessings that visit your days came because you're just an incredibly nice person who made God's special list? No. His goodness was meant to lead you to him. Going through your life receiving what he has been giving without trusting in Christ is like saying, God, I had all this coming to me. I deserve this. This thing you call grace, you gave it to me because I'm a good person. So keep it coming. You ever think about that before? All the grace that you've received, when you take it for granted and you act as if it is something that you have earned, what you're actually declaring is that this is not about grace at all. Grace is something that's freely given, undeserved. But somehow I have earned this from God. We want gifts. We don't always want the giver. Our ingratitude and our greed for what he can do for us while rejecting him is the height of sin. God, give me all of these things. Give me your goodness. Give me all the blessings that come with it. But I don't have to change because I deserve this already. I'm better than these people. One day, that gravy train will come to an end. Stop. Look around you. See the hand of the Lord in your life and turn to him today. Put an end to the taking from God and learn to thank him in the way you live your life. 
Second thing is rest in his goodness when adversity comes. We live in a world where bad things happen to good people, and for some reason, good things happen to bad people as well. Sometimes our circumstances argue with us about how good God is. Sometimes God's good plan for us means going through trials and losses and heartache and, yes, even sometimes death. But hear me. He is there for you. Psalm 31, verse 19 to 20 says, How great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you and accomplished in the sight of everyone for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from the schemes of men, from quarrelsome tongues. God has great goodness that is stored up for you. Take your refuge in him. Rest there. He is up to more than you know and has hidden help that only comes when you give it up to him. The last thing that we do in response to his goodness, we must step out in faith. When you truly believe that God is good all the time, it frees you to act on your faith. Most of us have heard the words of Jeremiah 29, 11, so much that we can speak it without even thinking about what it says. For I know the plans I have for you. And if I were to stop there, every one of you could quote the rest of that verse. Talks about God's goodness and his plans not to harm you, but to give you a blessing and a hope and a future. Believing that frees us from fear about taking risks for Christ's sake. Psalm 8411 is fueled to the fire of doing great things for God. It says, for the Lord God is a sun. He illuminates the path that I walk. He is a shield. He protects me. The Lord gives grace and glory. That's praise for him. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. You never miss out if you step out with God. In his book, it's a great book, by the way, Everybody's normal until you get to know them. John Ortberg writes of a young man named John Gilbert, who only lived to the age of 25. When John was five years old, he was diagnosed with Duquesne's muscular dystrophy, a genetic, progressive, debilitating disease. It would claim his life 20 years later, but not before subtracting almost everything from him. Every year, John Gilbert lost something. In time, he lost the ability to do all outward things that we take for granted, even the ability to speak. But there was one moment that stood out. It happened when he was invited to the NFL fundraising auction as a young man. When it began, one particular item caught John's eye a basketball that was signed by all of the players from the Sacramento Kings. John desperately wanted that ball. And when it came up for bid, he felt his hand raise up slightly in the air. His mother quickly brought it back down, knowing that they didn't have the funds to cover any bid. The bidding on the basketball continued with excitement. It rose to an astounding amount compared to other items at the auction and especially to the real value of that basketball. 
Finally, a man made a bid that no one else could possibly match, and he won the prize. The man walked to the front. He claimed the basketball. But instead of going back to his seat, this man walked across the room and gently placed it into the thin, small hands of the boy who would never dribble that ball down a court, never throw it to a teammate, never fire it from the foul line, but would cherish it for as long as he would live. John Gilbert, while he was still able to write, wrote these words. It took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room, then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. To this day, I am amazed. Have you ever been given a gift that you could have never gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return? Everyone in this room would have to answer that question with a resounding yes. What Jesus Christ has done for you is not what you deserved. It's grace. Every day you experience his grace. The question is, what will you do with his grace? Let me close with these words from Ephesians 2. Verse 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. By the way, Every point that I have made this morning comes from those verses. I know I normally start with the key verse. Listen to it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Let's live as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Realize that this is the most generous gift you will ever receive. Let's not take it for granted. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are grateful today for your grace. We're grateful for the incredible love that you have shown to us, reaching into our lives that while we were still sinners, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord, there is no way that we could ever claim that we deserve this grace. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to not take it for granted. But I pray that every act, every attitude, every word that comes from our mouths would reflect a people who are simply grateful for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Now I pray that you would empower us to live as those who have been redeemed. Use these people as your instruments to stir up revival. Revive us, and we'll give you the praise for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. It is such a blessing to be with you and to be able to share in God's goodness with you. 
my prayer is that his grace would be evident in every aspect of your life as you leave this place. There will be people at the doors to receive the offering this morning. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace. Thank you, Tim.